Hello and welcome to Banking Transform. I'm your host, Jim Maroos, founder and CEO of the Digital Banking Report and co-publisher of the financial brand. According to a recent survey by Deloitte, nearly two-thirds of respondents said that global digital identity will be very important in the future, despite the fact that digital IDs are still largely underutilized in the world today. Newer digital identity verification methods, like biometrics, could provide far superior identification protocols and offer consumers more seamless experiences while protecting against fraudsters. Digital IDs could also greatly enhance the gig economy, where the identity of remote workers is paramount to the protection of valuable corporate and consumer assets. While passwords are currently king, the development of universal digital identity recognition solutions that are both seamless and secure will eventually be the norm. We are fortunate today to have David Birch, Director of Innovation and Global Ambassador at Consult Hyperion, who I have known for years. During the podcast, Dave discussed the benefits and risk of digital identity and how we must balance connected commerce with human rights. Welcome to the show, David. It's it's been a while since we have seen each other, but that the world that we live in is now without events or much travel. Before we dig into today's topic, could you please tell us a little bit about your professional background and how you got involved in the discussion around digital identity? Well, I was a consultant for, for many years, Jim, and as part of that, I just started to do a lot of work on electronic payments and uh, electronic money. Uh, you know, the very early days of, of internet and online banking, mobile banking, that kind of thing. And the more time I spent working on those kind of, you know, what were then new products and services, the more I began to realize that the big problem with all of these things was actually identity. Basically, getting a new payment system off the ground is actually not that hard. I mean, payments are just messing about on a spreadsheet, really. It's not that complicated. Once you know who everybody is, right? If I know it's me and I know it's you, then figuring out the money is not a problem. And if you start to look at the costs associated with KYC, AML, uh, you know, anti-money laundering, this kind of stuff, you know, you see those costs just escalating out of control. So every time the technologists come up with a faster computer, faster communications, the costs don't go down because the costs of KYC and AML keep going up. So I began to start looking at the whole sort of identity space, like how come we can't fix this? Why isn't there a a simple solution to all of this? I I still don't know, by the way, and that's years later. (laughs) Certainly in the US and the UK, we're, we're no nearer. But yeah, so really it came out of the payment space. And then the more time I spent working on the identity stuff and you know, doing work with different clients around the future of digital identity, I started to realize that actually it's a really fundamental area, like because it's not just fundamental to payments, it's fundamental to everything. There's a big problem, which, you know, you and I have talked about this before. I mean, the thing about digitization, I mean, basically taking things out of the physical world, like driver's licenses and passports, and just making sort of electronic shadows of those and trying to work with them in the online space doesn't work because online identity and offline identity are just different things. And we need to rethink it so that we're building actual digital identity for the new era and not simply digitizing what we had before. And so that's kind of what got me so interested and excited about this stuff. And, you know, I have one or two ideas about it, which have 
sort of worked out okay. And then I was persuaded to write a book about it because of some other stuff that I was doing. And, you know, I flatter myself that the book was was tolerably well received. And actually, I'm in the middle of writing another book about it at the moment. And it sort of went from there. And I think what you've seen is five years ago, it was me bugging you saying, you know, digital identity is going to be the next big thing. And now, particularly because of the pandemic, the lack of a digital identity infrastructure has been thrown into pretty sharp relief. So I think that's what's pushing it back up the agenda right now, which is, you know, fortunate for me. As you mentioned, there, there are real world benefits to having an accepted and recognized digital identity for every human, from airports to health records to banking transactions and, and commerce. And many firms and government organizations are working hard to digitize our identity, making life more efficient and streamlined. But that said, there are also those who are convinced that digital IDs pose one of the gravest risks to human rights of any technology that we've encountered, especially as biometric databases are being set up, including facial recognition and other identifiers that are being stored on insecure databases without the consumer's consent. It is becoming a necessary element in the functioning digital economy. What are the most important trends that you're noticing in digital identity today? Just to address that point head on, Jim, I mean, I think we have to recognize that people who are a little paranoid and and suspicious, not only of government malfeasance, but government incompetence, are concerned that if we put all of our eggs in a single digital identity basket, we could be opening ourselves up to surveillance, fraud, all sorts of dread outcomes. So people like that, and I'm one of them, by the way, are perfectly reasonably suspicious. But this is why I say we have to look at a digital identity, not a digitized identity. If we just take passports and driver's licenses and put them in a big database, we get nowhere. Because if you think about the way you interact with people in the digital world, you interact with people in a very different way. You have multiple overlapping identities in different online communities. You want the ability to reveal selectively things about yourselves and conversely to keep other things hidden, not because you're a criminal, but because of nobody's business. And you need identity to work in a way which is, in a sense, counterintuitive. Let, let me illustrate the dangers with the bar thing. In 32 states, I think, the driver licenses are machine readable. There are companies that put those boxes in, you have to swipe the license and it goes green. And they collect all of the data off those licenses because what's on those licenses is personal data. There was a fantastic experiment that was done. I think it was in Washington state. And what they did was they rigged up one of those boxes to a display that was over the door. So when somebody came in and swiped their license, all of their personal information was displayed over the door. And so people would come in, swipe it, happy, it goes green, they go sit down, get a drink, and then they look around and then they realize what's going on. And then people are a bit shocked as to what's on their licenses. I, you know, My wife, for example, has a California driver's license. California driver's licenses include not only you know name and address, height and weight, but well, she says it's more of a sort of target weight. You know, it's more of a, <laughs> what is the bar going to do with that data apart from lose it and have it copied all around the internet somewhere? Online, we can avoid all of that. I can go into a chat room and I can present an unforgeable, digitally signed, authenticated credential that says this person is a teacher at this high school. You don't know who they are, right? Because none of your business. But you know, this person is a doctor. This person is 
a cop. This person is over 21. This person, you can see all of that stuff and you don't have to collect any of their personal information. There's really a difference then between the concept of universal identity, online identity, and digital identity. And you're not really proposing a universal identity. You're really talking about a case-by-case basis of identity that needs to be released. You're quite right to highlight the difference between the two things. So on the one hand, I would expect people to have multiple digital identities, just like they have multiple credit cards. I'll have a bank identity, I'll have a health identity, I'll have a travel identity, but really you're going to have a handful of those. How has mobile technology then played a role in the evolution of identity? And in the same sense, how has blockchain technology played a role? Well, look, Jim, I think it's too early in the blockchain life cycle to say whether that's going to have a real impact What I would say is I don't think it's particularly relevant to the issue of moving away from uh, interactions that are based on identification to interactions that are based on authorization. And if you want the dreary, involved, complicated, Byzantine technical reason why I say that, you've got no choice because I'm going to tell you. So the way these things work, basically... Is It's all key pairs, right? It's private and public key pairs. So I present to you my credential that says I'm over 21, right? That's linked to a public key. You need to know that I'm the person who controls that public key. How do you do that? Well, you construct a cryptographic challenge using the public key and you send it to me. The only person that can answer that challenge is the person that has the corresponding private key, which is me, right? Anybody else in the whole world can see that challenge. None of them can answer it. So now you know I've got control of the private key. So now you know it's me who's over 21. But the point is, the private key is nothing to do with you. Whether that private key is on a blockchain, on a USB stick, printed out in a QR code, tattooed into my head, and I have to shave my hair every time I want to access it, doesn't matter. The location of the private key is completely irrelevant to the issue of establishing control over it. So you make the cryptographic challenge against the public key, wherever the corresponding private key is, you don't care. It might be on a blockchain, who knows? You know, I don't think it's, I don't think it makes much of a difference from that. If you're talking about in the future, is it possible that the life cycles of uh, digital identities might be recorded on certain kinds of shared ledgers, which will almost certainly not be blockchains, The answer to that is probably yes. I can see reasons why you'd want to do that, which is to do with robustness and reliability and auditability and other things. We shouldn't be derailed by blockchain at the moment. The problem we have at the moment is that we need somewhere to get started. And in the UK, in the US, in other places, we don't want to do what's happened in, for example, India or China, where the government gives you a unique number and you have to use that for everything. If I have to use my government unique number to log into Pornhub, I'm going to be really upset. I would use your number actually for that. So (laughs) that wouldn't really get us very far. But it's not right. You know, what should the identity scheme look like then? What we need is kind of what they're edging to in places like Canada, Australia, where what they're doing is they're creating a framework for identities. And then you have identities that interoperate within that framework. So in other words, I have a bank identity. I go to log on to American Airlines to create an American Airlines account. I can use my bank identity to log in. And my bank identity will tell American Airlines, this person is a real person. His name's Dave Birch. American Airlines then don't have to 
faff about getting me to scan driving licenses and whatever. So you get this kind of interoperability. If we try and boil the ocean by creating an identity like for everything, then it's just never going to get off the ground. So we have to start somewhere. Travel sounds like it would be a good idea, but I can tell you from personal experience of projects I've been involved in, it's not. Because you as the customer, you think it'd be so cool just to go to the airport, you know, flash my phone, walk through and get, that sounds great. But remember, an airport is a rather chaotic collection of interconnecting small businesses. Like the people that run the gates aren't the same people that do the baggage handling. The people that do the baggage handling aren't the same people that do the ticketing. The people that do the ticketing aren't the same people that do the meal selection. People who do the meal selection aren't the same people that run the display boards in the airport. And they're not the people that run the concessions. And they're not the people that do the parking. So actually, travel's quite complicated because you've got a lot of stuff coordinated to make that work. I actually think that banks are probably a better place to begin. And the reason for that is that banks already have to do it by law. I mean, banks have to do the KYC, right? They're made to do it. They've already spent the money. It does seem sort of strange, don't you think? Like you could have had an account with Bank of America for 50 years. I'm not saying anything personal, Jim. This is a hypothetical example. But you could have had an account at Bank of America for 50 years. You walk next door to Citibank and they'll treat you like you just got off the boat. Can you bring in photographs and birth certificates and, you know, all these kind of things? That seems kind of odd. What should really happen is the first time you come into contact with the financial system, you get issued with a digital identity, which is effectively a financial services passport. The first bank to meet you gives you the passport, and then they stamp it with a little visa. You're allowed to visit the land of Bank of America. And then you can go next door to Citibank, and you can either get a new passport next door. I mean, let's say for some reason, I just don't want my personal and business banking to be on the same digital. I want two separate ones. That's fine. No problem. Or I can go to Citibank and show them my passport and they can just put a stamp in it says, well, now you're allowed to visit the land of Citibank. There's no need to do all this stuff all over again. And actually, I'm picking Citibank as an example because they published a, a paper a couple of months ago about federated bank identity as a sound way forward. And it was actually a pretty good paper, actually pretty interesting. So the idea that we need to start somewhere, why don't we start with banks? Because right now they do this and it's just a cost. They have to do all this work to establish that your gym and then they just sit on it. They're not allowed to make any money out of that. And that doesn't seem right either. It's, it reminds me a bit like ATMs. In the old days, the banks that had the big ATM networks didn't want to let the other banks use them because they figured they were like subsidizing the smaller banks to use their big networks. And then after a while, everyone's just like, this sucks. We should just be able to use any ATM. It should be the same with identity, right? I get my Bank of America identity. At first, I can use that to visit the land of Bank of America. But then I should be able to use it to visit the land of Citibank as well. And should Citibank have to pay Bank of America for that? Of course they could. It's interchange. You know, Bank of America did all the work. They established who I am. But now Citibank can pay them a buck when I use it instead of 100 bucks to figure out who I am. So I can't produce a shred of evidence to say that banks have any sound plans or policies in this space. Who knows? But it seems to me that would be a good place to start. So how do we manage how firms are collecting and sharing insights on people without their consent, which is going on daily? This is why I sort of want the kind of partitioning of identities, because if you imagine how this would really work is, let's say I have my travel digital identity. Think of that as a private public key pair. So I've got my travel identity, and then I go and get a visa from American Airlines stamped into that. 
I go and get one from British Airways. I go and get one from Delta, right? I now have an identity which is known to all of those airlines. And actually, if it's good for me, if I want Aeroflot and Delta to know that I'm the same person, which I do, of course, because they share the same air mile scheme, that's great. Now they know they've seen the same identity in both places. If I don't want British Airways to know that I'm the same person as this, then I'll get a different identity to do that with. It puts it in the hands of the consumers, which is the right way to do it. I mean, let's say I've got my everyday identity, my default everyday identity. In a sound world, your default identity would be a John Doe identity. Because when you walk into the mall and you want them to know you're the same person that came last week, you bought frozen yogurt last week. If they've got a good deal on frozen yogurt, can they flash it up on your phone right now? None of that requires them to know that you're Jim. All they need to know is you're the same person that came in last week and bought the frozen yogurt. So the 99% of interactions are like that. So your default standard identity won't be your bank identity or travel identity. It'll be your John Doe identity because most people most of the time are John Doe. So what role do mobile devices or even their underlying big tech firms, Apple and Google have in the digital identity world and or maybe even telcos? This is heading into really interesting territory because the mobile device is the obvious place to store the keys that you need to make this whole superstructure stand up. You have to be able to store the keys, private keys, in some tamper-resistant memory somewhere that you, know, you can't have them copied around. This is why the Bitcoin people go to such great lengths to put them on USB sticks and bury them in the garden. And then when the dog digs them up and eat them, they can't get their Bitcoins back. So we don't want something like that. But the mobile phone is the obvious place to store those keys. There's two pieces of secure memory. It's a very superficial view of it. But in your phone, your iPhone or your Samsung or whatever, there are two pieces of secure memory. There's the SIM card. Remember, SIM cards, those chips, they're the same chips that are on your bank card. I mean, those chips are secure, right? So you've got the SIM card, and then you've got what they call the secure element or the secure enclave. That's the thing that Apple won't let other people use, right? But Google does. So you can do things on Google phones that you can't do with Apple phones. So really, the keys have to be stored into one of those two things. If telcos were run by sane human beings with any concept of strategic planning and a shared future that's desirable for humans to live in, then 10 years ago, the telcos would have got together and said, why don't we use SIM cards for this? Why don't we put the secure digital identities in the SIM cards? And then when you get a new phone, you put the SIM card in, bingo, you can go log into the DMV again, you know, without a... In a rational world, the telcos would have done this 10 years ago. Actually, they started doing it last year. But yes, you're right to point at the phone. And I think you're right to express a little frustration that maybe that hasn't happened. What's happened instead is, and this is unbelievable to me, banks and finance companies have chosen the unsecure part of phones, which is the phone number, and based stuff on that. So, you know, they use one-time text messages to send to people, which are trivially spoofed. I was just getting a cup of coffee before I came on to talk to you. And I was listening to a report on BBC Radio. I was tweeting it. There's a report on BBC Radio today because the fraudsters are sending text messages to people and they're spoofing the bank number. So people get the text message and they think it's come from the bank. 
And then the guy at the bank says, of course, it's not really the guy at the bank, it's the fraudster. The fraudster says, oh, we're doing a security check. We need you to move your money to this safe account or whatever, at which point I would tell him to, you know what, you know. Yeah, right. Even if it was my bank, I'd tell him to. <laughs> but amazingly, people do it. They're using text messages completely insecure. Yeah, it's got to be 10 years since NIST said they should deprecate text messaging. So instead of using the secure bit and putting keys inside the SIM, we're mucking about using text messages and, and crazy stuff like that. How do we deal with security then, the whole issue of security? Well, this is the thing. So who are the people that have access to the secure part of the phone, not the SIM? Whereas Apple, Google, and Samsung, really, because Samsung have their own Knox you know, version of this. What happens? I was messing around on LinkedIn today. I know you find this very hard to believe, Jim, because you only use it for very serious business purposes. <laughs> but there's a job advert that I was posting on LinkedIn this morning. Apple in Cupertino have an open position right now for head of identity. And the position actually says something like, you know, we're going to help people to get rid of their wallet. Well, if you're going to help people to get rid of their wallet, you've got to replace the identity stuff because most of what's in people's wallets isn't payments. It's driver's licenses, loyalty cards, insurance, health. It's identity. So if Apple can take those things and put them in the iPhone, then one, I'll be eternally grateful because it'll save me a lot of effort. But two, they'll have almost complete control. I mean, I would do the same if I was them, but it's not obvious that's a good thing. It's not Fortnite suing Apple, it's the DMV because you know they can't use the facilities they want. So something will have to happen, I'm sure. It's got to be a company that both has the trust of the consumer and a lot of information already stored. So you get back to... Google, Samsung, and Apple. If you read the Apple patents, I mean, Apple are, as you'd imagine, very smart. So what Apple don't want to do is be responsible for your personal information. That's that's bad. Nobody wants to do that. You, personal information is like toxic waste. I mean, you want it in a dump somewhere that's remote from, you know, you don't want people to be able to accidentally touch the stuff. So if you look at the Apple patents, what Apple are saying, and actually I think this is good, and this heads down the same sort of direction as the W3C verifiable credentials work, is what Apple will store in your phone is basically the credentials, but not the underlying identity. So Apple will store the thing in your phone, which is the DMV saying you have a driver's license, but with a pointer so that you can go to go and look at the DMV if you want to. Mm -hmm. And I think that's actually not a bad way forward. I think they're being quite smart about that. If Apple and Google and everybody else converges on the W3C verifiable credentials as the standard for this kind of thing, I think that's a big step forward for all of us. Seriously, I mean, that would be really helpful. I think some people would be concerned that, you know, big companies are completely in control of your identity, and that's that's reasonable. But I think Apple and Google are already starting to show that they're sensitive to some of these issues. And you see the sort of opening shots because people like Apple want to make privacy part of the actual proposition to customers, not a back office sort of hygiene factor that, yeah, you've got a tick box. Yeah, we look after your data. They want to kind of bring it right up front. Have you used sign in with Apple at all? Yeah, I have. I just love sign in with Apple, don't you? It's just. It's like using PayPal. It is a one click connection to doing something. We're all looking for simplicity. And. 
What's interesting is it's all based on trust. So I trust Apple. They, they haven't messed me up before. I kind of trust Google because directly they haven't messed me up. I don't trust Facebook because they've misused it in, in cases that I've had. But you know what? The, the other part of this is I'm not sure if I trust myself to manage my data as much as I trust them. You're spot on there, Jim. You're spot on. I trust Apple and Google to manage the credentials. I trust them to get the cryptography right. Right. But I trust my bank to look after my personal data. So if you're going to imagine a situation where I get my iPhone, I want to prove to the bar I'm over 18. So my iPhone goes to my bank and gets a proof from the bank. Bank of America say this person is over 18 or over 21 or whatever. But my real date of birth and age and all these kind of things are safely locked up in the bank vault. They never go anywhere near the phone. The phone has just got the cryptography that says I'm over 21. Now, to me, that seems like a good distribution of liabilities. Like, I can see why something like that would really work. Actually, I think a lot of people, insofar as they think about privacy at all, which is not very much, people would do it. And because Apple would make it, I assume, Apple would make the customer experience appealing and easy. I mean, they're good at that stuff, right? So you said we sign in with Apple, right? So the other day, I saw a thing for the New York Times. It was a special offer. It was like $2 or something to sign up for. And I thought, okay, actually, I wanted to read some stuff in the New York Times because the election's coming up and I want to see what's going on in America. So I click on the button and up it comes. Sign in with Facebook, I think. Sign in with Google. As soon as you see that button that says sign in with Apple, you just hit that button straight away. That's an extraordinarily good point because they do give the options. Yeah. Do you want to do Google? Do you want to do Apple? Do you want to do Facebook? Some of it for me is which password do I remember well enough? And and then the other one is, who do I trust? You know, the science of knowing which one you click is pretty strong. And, and I would imagine those people that have a Google device are probably going to pick Google and we're going to pick Apple. Who's going to pick Facebook as being the way you want that connection to be? I don't know. I mean, the, the reason why I hit sign in with Apple is when you hit sign in with Apple, it says, okay, you're signed up. Do you want me to tell the New York Times that you're Dave Birch? Or do you want me to tell the New York Times you're one, two, three, four, five, six at whatever it is, apple.com, right? And so I always click the one, two, three, four, five, six at apple.com. Now, the New York Times can still send me emails about special offers and things. They still come through. But to the New York Times, I'm one, two, three, four, five, six at apple.com. To the Washington Post, I'm five, six, seven, eight, nine at apple.com. To the Wall Street Journal, I'm nine, seven, six, five, three, two at apple.com. If I want to tell those guys that I'm the same person, it's up to me, but they can't tell that I'm the same person just by sneaking around looking at email addresses and stuff. Well, what's interesting about that is the second part of that equation is, and then do you want to pay with Apple? It's interesting how the payment function and the digital identification function get tied together so well, because that's the next step of that is, do you want to pay with Apple? I mean, you're spot on, Jim. I mean, that takes us full circle. Like I said, right at the beginning, the reason I got interested in this stuff in the first place was because if I know it's you, then the payment stuff is easy, right? And where that's going next, of course, you see this already in what's going on in Europe in some places, is if I know it's you, what exactly do I need Visa and MasterCard for? Like Visa and MasterCard are there so that I can pay safely. I don't have to care about the merchant. The merchant doesn't have to care about me. You've got the fraud guarantee, the payment. You have all those kind of things. But if I know it's you and you know it's me, what do they bring into the party? Right? You may as well just get the money from my bank account. Or actually what you'll actually do, of course, is ask me to do a push 
through FedNow or whatever, and the money just goes from me to you instantly, and there's there's nobody else involved in the transaction. The implications of getting the identity infrastructure right go far beyond making it easy for me to log into porn or for you know people to apply for new bank accounts or whatever it is people do in America. If you think that other people, e.g. Apple, haven't figured out, then you're so wrong because they're so much smarter than we are. Finally, you know, how do we deal with the social and human rights issues that relate to the different ways we're picking up identities? When you have biometrics and all that and you have facial recognition, you have a lot of risk or opportunity for social and human rights issues. I've been writing a piece for Forbes about this, but I'm not sure whether to publish it or not. But there was a super story in the New York Times a few months ago. So there's this guy, I can't remember the name, it's a rich guy, he has some retail stores. But he's a millionaire, right? Rich guy, he's in the restaurant, and his daughter walks in with a new boyfriend that he hasn't seen before. So he takes a picture of the boyfriend, and he runs him through the Clearview system. And the Clearview system finds his picture on social media and comes back and says, well, he's this guy. He's a VC. He's in San Francisco. Clearly, the guy's never met any VCs or been to San Francisco because he thought that was an acceptable suitor (laughs) for his daughter. I mean, (laughs) you would never make that mistake, I'm sure. And at first, they were asking, you know, what what father could do more? But then you think, I don't know. This is not good on so many levels. Because apart from anything else, the portfolio that guy is getting is built from, you know, Facebook. You don't know how that information got in there. You don't know that information was correct. Like if I knew people were going to be doing that to you walking down the street, then what I'd do is I'd go and I'd get some AI deep fakes of you, you know, involved in some sort of terrible crime somewhere, put it all over Facebook, because then I know that the algorithms will pick it up. And then the next time someone goes to look at you, what they'll see is the stuff that I fed in, rather than anything that's kind of true. It's called surrogation, the substitution of the map for the territory. So I'm very uncomfortable with stuff. Biometric authentication is fantastic. The more, the better. I I love the fact that I can just pick up my phone, glance at it, and then I can see my messages. I've, I've just been to the store like all normal people, I, I don't use cash anymore, so I pay for everything using my phone. It's fantastic. You can take it. Actually, it doesn't work very well at the because you have to take your mask off, and you can't take the mask off in the store, so you have to punch in your passcode. But I mean, you get the general exactly. picture. Exactly. But isn't it easy? Yeah. Don't you want everything to work like that? But that's authentication. Biometric authentication, yes, please. So my car knows it's me. My phone knows it's me. My house knows it's me. My TV knows That's fantastic. Your house knows it, me? Not so sure. Also, Jim, do you have one of those video doorbells yet? Because you oh, seem yeah. like a tech yeah. kind of yeah. guy. My next door neighbor just got one. So, so you can see who's pressing the button at your door, right? Not exactly. You asked me if I have a visual doorbell. I do. It's in a box on my office floor right now. <laughs> and it's been there for two years. So it's even outdated technology. <laughs> but I, I understand the concept. Yeah. But let me ask you the question on moral. Like you live in your right. house, you live across the street from Leah. You put up your video doorbell. Now you're recording everybody that goes into her house. I mean, does that sound right? I mean, that doesn't sound right to me. Well, it doesn't until, I mean, now our police departments and our government are trying to use that as ways to keep people safe. So again, it gets down to a personal preference as to the balance between privacy and value. And so- Will Leah not like the fact that I watch everybody that goes in her house? Probably not. But if something happens, 
Will she be the first one to knock my door and say, by the way, did you possibly catch that on camera? Because I don't have one. And then it becomes valuable. It's again, it's like everything having to do with privacy. It's a balancing act around trust, degree, and value. You're illustrating the point really well. So once we start moving into the kind of digital realm with these kind of things, there are these kind of ethical, moral issues that, that need this kind of grown-up discussion. And I don't really see that sort of discussion happening yet. We're deliberately picking examples to make people think, right? You know, people going to each other's houses and stuff like that. But this is going to happen a million times every day on the internet all the time. And that's why we have to be thoughtful about the digital identity infrastructure we put in place. Because if we don't put the right infrastructure in place, then people won't be able to make ethical and moral choices on top of it. If you've implemented a system where every citizen has a number, every time you do something, that number's recorded. Or like in China, you want to play a computer game, you have to do facial recognition to make sure that you're not playing too much computer games every week. Like if you want a system like that, I can I can build that tomorrow. That's an, You can call up Oracle and Palantir, I'm sure. They'll install that kind of system tomorrow. That's not good enough. We need something that's much more sophisticated so that we can have those kind of ethical and moral discussions on top of that basic infrastructure. David, thank you so much for being on the show today. No, thanks for the questions, Jim. I really appreciate it. It's interesting because this is an area that it's an unfinished document, which is great because, (laughs) as you know, it keeps the ability for you to keep on writing books. I mean, if anybody could see the the video on what we're doing here, (laughs) David has a bookcase behind him of all the books he's written. There's like 500 of them. You know, the good news is... It's that all work, Jim. I made my choice. That's right. And you know what? Overall, it's the discussion that's so important and it's so ever-changing. And even COVID has changed, you know, our perception of the need for a universal or a digital ID. So again, David, thank you so much for being on the show today. And I really look forward to keeping the discussion going because it's not going to get old. It's lovely talking to you, Jim. Look forward to catching up with you soon. Thanks. You know, it's unusual we have a discussion with a guest where we kind of leave the conclusion hanging. But I think that's where we are with digital identity. We understand that there's a need for identity. We understand there's a need for digital and online identities. How that transpires and how that happens over time and how we deal with the social issues, the governmental issues, the technology issues, is still yet to be defined. Definitely gonna have Dave on again in the future to give us updates because it is an ever-changing world when you talk about the online identity and the future of that and the value of that to all parties involved. Thanks for listening to Banking Transformed, rated as the top five banking podcast. If you enjoyed today's interview, please be sure to subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast app. And don't forget to give our show a five-star rating. Also, be sure to catch my recent articles on the financial brand and check out the Digital Banking Report for new research we are doing on digital transformation, retail banking innovation, the digital customer experience, and financial marketing. This has been a production of Evergreen Podcast. A special thank you to our producer, Leah Longbreak, and audio engineer, Sean Rule Hoffman. I'm your host, Jim Roos. Until next time, embrace change, keep learning, and be willing to disrupt the status quo at your company and in your life.
You've got questions, we've got answers. Business leadership, ownership, and sales can be challenging. Tune into the Accelerate Your Business Growth podcast to learn from the world's experts. Join me, your host, Diane Helbig, as I chat with people who have expertise in various areas of business. You'll enjoy the lively conversations that are focused on providing you with the ideas, tips, and suggestions you need to realize greater success. Get what you need for your business when you need it from the people who have the answers. Accelerate Your Business Growth is part of the Evergreen Podcast Network and is available on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast.